And here we are with the New Edge Sword and Sorcery short story chat panel thing. Round three. This time uh, I'm joined by Jay Wolf and Matt Holder, and we will be discussing The Wolves of Winter Road, written by T.A. Markton and published in A Book of Blades, Volume 2, this year's new anthology from the Rogues in the House crew. Uh, yeah, Jay, why don't you give us a, a short introduction, and then Matt, you do the same. Hi, I am... Oh, geez, I'm sorry. Hi, I'm Jay Wolf, uh, editor and uh, Bon Vivant at large. Um, and the next time we, we read this, uh, I will be a published novelist. <laughs> hey. Awesome. All right, how about uh, Matt? Who the heck are you? Hello, my name's Matt Holder. I'm mostly a teacher, but I also write... I do have a story upcoming in one of the Old Moon Quarterly. I think it'll come out in the spring of next year. So you can look forward in there. I also do reviews for Strange Horizons. You can find some of my reviews there. Awesome. And uh, I'm the, the slightly gassy uh, editor. Sorry, I just had a Coke. Uh, editor of New Age Sword and Sorcery and podcaster of uh, So I'm Running a Novel. And uh, I'm chunking away at that titular novel, almost done outlining the goddamn thing. So maybe one day people can actually get to read it. Also today, I was messing around in Twine, the choose-your-own-adventure writing software. Who knows where that will lead? <laughs> but it was fun to dick around in, uh, for sure. And uh, it would be kind of fun, actually, if we tried to have a panel discussion about a choose-your-own-adventure story. I wonder how that would even work. Because like, each of us would have our own experiences with would it. Would we have you know? to choose our own panel, or...? <laughs> yeah, it's like I guess I guess it would depend on how many endings it had, and then you could each discuss your own journeys, you know, especially if there's only the one ending, that'd be a little easier. But that's a challenge for another day. Okay. Um, so the Wolves of Winter Road, um basically super mega broad summary. Uh a couple of fellows by the name of Heath and Imrich, Heath being uh, described as a red-haired archer, Imrich Imrich being like the big warrior type. Uh, are traveling along uh, a frozen, you know, winter or journey uh, across like a trade route, basically trying to get from A to B. And they're very concerned because uh, they're getting low on food. Game is scarce. There's talk of big wolves, which uh, is always a little alarming. There's also talk of more superstitious things, which we'll get into, which eventually uh, it becomes relevant as it does in these kinds of stories. Uh, pretty early on in the story, they meet a woman named Timora, who seems attractive and interesting, but also very strange. And you know, why is she on her own? She has a story, but doesn't entirely add up. Uh, and finally, uh, there's a, you know some shenanigans involving uh, a sorcerer, as tends to happen in these tales, and a big climax I'm sure we'll discuss in detail as we get deeper into our discussion, uh, leading up to an ending that really tickled me and was a big part of why I thought it might be fun to discuss this story. Uh, Jay, why don't you share with us your sort of first general impressions uh, of the story? How did it strike you? I really like the, the the prose craft in general for this. It felt um, sort of like it was aiming for a sort of fairy tale vibe, which I think with a lot of the story elements, that really kind of all slotted together really well for me. Um, in terms of like that thing that we've talked about before, where like the style of the prose that you're choosing kind of helps to build the world for you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um I feel like that was probably like the most effective part for me, at least to like set the stage for the story to like go into it with the vibe of like, 
there's going to be some supernatural elements and they're probably going to have a sort of a fairy tale vibe, I guess, is where I would go with that. Cool. And uh, Matt, what was your you know general first impressions, et cetera? My first impressions, I was kind of, like I said, I read it yesterday and um, I was sort of mid, I guess, as the, as the children say. Um, on my first read, I, you know, I think it, I think it did do a lot of things pretty well. I think, um, there's like an economy of storytelling as I think Jay was mentioning with the sort of fairy tale thing. I thought that the story built up this sense of dread really well. Um, however, the more I started thinking about it both last night and today, uh, there's some more going on here that I think is really interesting in terms of like how it maybe plays with our expectations about these types of stories, because in some ways I I did feel like this was sort of a very uh, generic. And I use that word um, with the reference, not necessarily to plain or staid, but generic meaning very sort of conventional um, sword and sorcery tale type tale of, you know, you get two guys on the road, they meet some, Sort of creepy woman, uh, creepy sorcerer, some monsters, they fight, etc., etc. Um, but like I said, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I think there is a lot more here that I sort of latched onto the more I was thinking about it, the more I was getting, uh, going back through it again. Um, so yeah, I came, I came around on it. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a story that I had to come back to more than once to really get all the pieces of it. I felt like I feel pretty confident saying that, like, the first, the first trip through the story was definitely just sort of like trying to trying to take that again like you mentioned the sense of dread that was going on in the story and see sort of like the neat places where that sort of tent pulled throughout um but it took me it definitely took me a couple of passes to really like get what the story was doing so i definitely like i'm very sympathetic to that (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I chose it for us to discuss for a bunch of reasons. One of them was the fact that, yeah, like it has, I guess, I don't, I mean, I guess you use the word generic or whatever, but yeah, like I, um, it has a, a very familiar structure for sure. Classical. But, yeah, classical. Yeah, exactly. But like that worked fine for me. Um, it's because of what else it gets up to. You know, if, if, if all it had going was the surface elements, then yeah, okay, maybe it wouldn't be such an interesting story to discuss. But, it had more going for it. And one thing, it, I just found it fun, you know, in a way that I really uh, don't often encounter. Well, you know, a lot of Sword and Sorcery takes itself, I would argue, too seriously. Uh, the story managed to have, have what felt like real stakes and real consequences while still making me kind of chuckle and smile at points, which was really appreciated. It also was a little horny, which, like, <laughs> weirdly, you don't encounter a lot in this genre that is known for barely clothed people and thews and all that good stuff, you know? there's, a, I mean, as we all know across the history of it, there's um, a fair amount of people breasting boobily down the stairs uh, and other more skillful executions of horniness and, say, the work of Tanith Lee. Um, but by and large, it's a, it's a, I find it a curiously chaste genre. So I admit, like, I got kind of a kick out of the fact that this story does have a kind of a sexual frisson to certain scenes. And, you know, you can interpret how it ends. It's, it, the word family is invoked, but I don't know. It, didn't, it felt like something other than family to me. Um, almost like a, like a romantic triad, but also, well, anyway, we'll get more into that. Can, when we can I throw in, can I maybe put out the word pack? Yeah. <laughs> 
we are, we are talking about wolves here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As a wolf, I... Um, I've, had yeah. a, I've had a lot of jokes flung at me over my <laughs> long and stayed career. So, uh, yeah. Um, just saying. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, actually, I'm curious. Uh, was that just like, was that a me thing? Or did you two, uh, let's maybe start with you, Matt. Um, did you two find that it was sort of novel that the story had like a bit of sexuality in it? And it was like, what is the plot? It didn't feel, it wasn't like, you know, boring male gazy stuff or whatever. Like, yeah. What, what did you think of that, Matt? Did, did you feel that uh, when you were reading this? Yes. And that is actually what sort of brought me back to the story and made me appreciate it a lot more. Uh, the story is like super horny. I, I wish it was like more horny. Like I wish there the sex scene is a bit too chaste in my opinion. But um but yeah, you're definitely right that this like SNS genre full of like, you know, boob ladies is it's written by a bunch of like really insecure, mostly white dudes who don't know how to write about sexuality, let alone treat it with any kind of sophistication or maturity. Like it never rises above the level of like juvenilia, in my opinion. Um, I mean, I think Tanith Lee is a great, like, reference for this story. I think, like, if I would think about, like, Trails of Influence, I don't, I don't know if it, uh, it was being directly referenced, but this felt very Tanith Lee. But, yeah, this woman that they meet, like, these two guys seem kind of klutzly, klutzy and dumb to me. Like, they're sort of, they're missing all the tells, and they're, that this, this lady is, like, not what she seems to be. Um, but I think that when she, um... She is a very sexual being, and it makes them very uncomfortable, and they can't deal with that. And I, and that's what that's what sort of brought me around to the story, in terms of what it was doing. Um, you had these two like big macho guys who you think you're supposed to protect this woman, um, but like they don't know what to do with her sexuality. They're just sort of almost like falling victim to it, and they're sort of confused by it um, because I don't know. They're just awkward dudes, which feels a lot more realistic to me. Um, but yeah, that's that's I definitely get into that going through it again. And I think that's, again, what sort of brought me back to the story and seeing the sort of subtleties and depth that were in there from from the jump. Yeah, and I, I think it is kind of fun that it, she, you know, she uses her sexuality to sort of, yeah, manipulate them a little bit, which is, you know, a common thing. But the less common thing is that maybe how it like. She, as you say, is using it to make them uncomfortable and to kind of like sort of establish a more interesting power dynamic in the story. I think I'm 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 a fan of them. I write them sometimes, but you know I think that there's a lot of uh, authors who would just go to something that would be a little easier, which would be to make her physical prowess as a werewolf be what is used to establish dominance, or to be like, hey, you know, she's on par with these two guys as well. She can totally kill dudes. So I thought it was kind of neat to have it come at uh, you know come at that from a different angle and in a way that didn't feel like it was written. Like I enjoyed it as a reader, but it didn't feel like it was written for me, a dude. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, like, the dudes. The dudes in the story are kind of idiots. And, uh, you know, again, in my opinion, and she, I don't, yeah, I guess I don't read it as very manipulative either. Like, I think she was just like hanging out and having a good time. And that one guy, Emmerich, I think like she invites him like to basically have a threesome. And he's like, I, 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 I do not like, he suddenly turns into like some really sheepish little dude and he walks away. And then the other guy <laughs> says that she's too forward. Right. Like yep. the one that actually slept with her, like they, they, they just, they do not know what to do with this, this woman's like sort of forthright sexuality. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned that I, I, I completely agree with and, and was actually like sort of the, the boiling point thought for me um, was one of the little bullet points I made on my notebook um, is that she's, she, 
in in a very kind of stark contrast to the way that like the hypersexuality is usually portrayed in these things again like those like a lot of the breasted boobily kind of ladies um or else things have a tendency to be very very chaste one of the things that i thought was interesting is that unlike say uh his vet in uh Fawford and the Great Mouser for example mm. um the sexuality of uh this character Tamora is not she's not using it to hurt anybody she's just sort of like she's obviously not socialized in the same way that the men are and that was something that I like immediately pinged for me like oh like there's something very different going on here (laughs) but she never really uses that that sort of sexual power like in a manipulative way or a hurtful way she's kind of using it to like help them understand her and they're kind of bouncing off of it because they're dudes. Um, well, so, so this was actually something that sure, I really yeah. felt very like comfortable with. And like, I immediately understood what was going on because I uh, have also been that awkward person trying to be like, Hey, uh, hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that was, that was actually quite relatable for me um, in that, in that regard. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, like she she's never ev- actually used any of either that or or her wolf powers, <laughs> for that matter, um, to really like um, to to harm the the fellows in the story. Um, she uses them to defend them in the in the ending, but not um, not not to hurt them, like to save them, which is, again, I just I thought it was very cool. Well, that. Maybe we want to leap ahead to something. So the ending, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for anybody who hasn't read it but is listening and doesn't care about spoilers, uh, which she shouldn't if you're listening to this. <laughs> uh, basically, um, there's that big confrontation with the sorcerer, which we may get into in more detail later. And by the end of it, uh, the fellows are, are not doing well, badly injured, not not doing well. Um, and uh, Tamora has these things that are introduced early in the story called moonflowers, which are quite valuable, and they can be used to heal, but only people with, you know, uh, oh, here, what is it here? Yeah, the healing power of moonflowers only works for those of ancient blood, but I will give you mine. Oh, it's almost vampiric in the sense of like giving them blood, bringing them into the club, and making them essentially. Right. We, I'm, I'm not even sure if they're werewolves or if they're just wolves at the end, which is an interesting distinction, especially considering, quote, Imric tried to speak but could not form the words. Um, yeah, so, I feel like that was left very open, kind of on purpose. Yeah, yeah. No, and so I'm not asking for like a definitive answer, but like, did you feel? Um, I'll start with you, Jane, and you, Matt. Uh, did you feel that the ending with her and her new pair of wolves, her new family, right, to replace the one that uh, she says was killed early on, although that story is po- quite possibly spurious? Um, do you feel that that had kind of a, like a I don't know a happiness to it, or that it was more like? kind of a vaguely unsettling horror where you're like, well, I guess it's better than they died, but. <laughs> um, for me, it was, it was like hopeful aspirational in the sense that like, you cannot survive this experience without being altered by it. And I feel like that's pretty true to a lot of sword and sorcery. I think that there's, there's, there's like a 50, 50 on it. Either you get a hard reset every, every book, like, Again, like Fafford and the Grey Mouser, or you, um, you're kind of like doomed to continue onward, uh, slightly worse than before, like, like Elric, for example. Um, and I feel like this was kind of interesting because it played with some of those tropes, but ultimately it creates, at least from her perspective, 
it sounds like there there's a net positive to be gained there. Um, but I don't know that I would necessarily want to live as a transformed wolf myself personally. So, you know. <laughs> Fair. How, how did you feel about the ending, Matt? Did it, how tonally did it um, come off to you? Uh, to me, it seemed like I would agree with Jay that it seemed cool or like uh, good vibes in the sense like there is a sort of potentially horrific aspect to it, um, I suppose. But uh, they had basically died anyway, um, so she was just saving them. And now they can hang out as wolves and stuff. And uh, this is another part of the story that is, like, pretty hot and heavy, like the sort of exchange of body fluids, which you normally associate with, like, vampirism, which is why that's, like, Dracula's, like, the hot one. Um, <laughs> but there's a kind of, like, earthy, earthy sexuality here with the sort of werewolves, which are often associated a lot more with like earth and musk and dirt. Um, but they're, but she's giving them her blood essentially. Uh, you know, so again, pretty, another sort of exchange of body fluids. Did you say, but yeah, you I liked that. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't think it felt like horrific. I didn't feel mm -hmm. like that was the intent. Um, you know, we don't get to know, all we know is the Red Wolf let out a low whimper, and I guess you can read that a couple of ways. Um, whimper is usually a word associated with kind of patheticness or sadness, perhaps. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Resignment and defeat. But yeah, I think that's also, it's yeah, I don't know. I kind of left it with the, like, it felt open-ended enough that it didn't necessarily strike me that they would always be wolves either. Really? Um, it seemed like certainly she has the ability to not always be a wolf. Is it possible that they are going to have that ability, whether it's, you know, accumulated over time or, you know, just that she's invited them into her supernatural existence um, and has not um, given them permission to refuse. Yeah. Which is definitely back to that sort of like saucy, sexy kind of aspect where it's like the forbidden, etc. Yeah, I th it's interesting you say it feel, felt open-ended to you because like, you know what it is really. But I don't know, when I read it, uh, I'm just used to thinking like, and the universe ends at the end of this page or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and so in my head, I was like, well, they definitely don't seem sentient and they definitely don't seem like they can transform. And one of those whimpering. Mm. <laughs> and And this was like, Oh, I, mean, I don't know if it was coercive, but you know, the, the big question for me is: Was this the end game she had in mind when she saw them on the road at the beginning of the story? Was it like, you know, what? Uh, I'm going to find one way or another <laughs> to convince these guys, whether you know I have sex with them and they convince them one night, hey, it'd be cool if you were wolves, or if you know we see what else happens on the road, maybe I'll strike it. You know, when opportunity arises, as it did uh, via the you know the wounds they suffered in the battle. Uh, with Bullard the sorcerer, um, yeah, yeah, I think I think maybe you know there's no clear answer, and that's part of what makes it I think a more interesting and a more thoughtful story. You know, I really I really feel like um, oh, yeah, uh, I, feel, I feel like very now that I'm, you've kind of blown it open for me because I hadn't even thought about it from the perspective of like that she might have been doing that for any reason other than like uh, well it's better than letting them die. <laughs> 
remember the beginning she's like oh you know i uh, my family got killed and of course she sort of fibs a bit and says they were killed by wolves but there's also talk early on of there being a lot of hunters out trying to deal with the wolf problem so my feeling is potentially like what, what's being inferred is she lost her family and she's like well shit i mean i'm a wolf i gotta have a pack i can't survive my own for all the talk we have of the wolves in fiction oh hey there's two strapping young bucks <laughs> let's see what we can do with this <laughs> it's definitely a she really tries- cool and interesting inversion oh sorry that like uh, she she tries to give him her little uh, moonflowers, um, which is sign number one for these guys. And this is why I, th- I think they're kind of dumb. Sign number one that this lady is not exactly who she seems. The other one is when she like eats the rat whole or whatever, the mouse yeah. or whatever. And they're just like, yeah, that's normal. You must have been hungry or whatever. <laughs> it wasn't like, weird enough like... for them. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, who knows, right? Maybe in, uh, you know, the sort of faintly medieval setting, they've seen a real hunger that could inspire someone to do something like that. Uh, hunger. Yeah, I mean, they're at war. So, like, that part, I like, I was able to suspend my disbelief slightly simply because war does really fucked up things to you. And, um, you know, especially as a bystander and as a woman, I have to imagine that would have been really fucking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And so, so with all that, like, I found the ending, um, it, it skewed horror, but for me, it was not a clear cut, 100% this or that. And it had that kind of like, hey, I guess things worked out. <laughs> you know, kind of happiness tinge around the edges of, of the, the horror. And I guess, yeah, it all comes down to like whether or not you think what she was doing was premeditated, whether or not you think like, yeah, the, 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 these guys might eventually get to walk on two legs again and you know make their own choices or if they're stuck as they are, if they're her pets. As much, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, yeah, it's open to interpretation. I think that's a big part of the strength of it and the fact that, yeah, no matter what, I don't think you can really say the ending is entirely one thing or another, but it's a more curious mix that makes you want to kind of poke and poke at it and think about it after reading. So, yeah, um, you know, we mentioned the supernatural and like it's just a small detail, but I think it's kind of interesting to discuss perhaps how very early in the story, you know, they're talking about really grounded concerns right they are a cult they are hungry they got to get down this path before the snow gets worse you know these are things anybody who's reading if they have spent any time anywhere with a bit even a bit of cold can be kind of like okay yeah i get this i I can relate to this um but then there's talk of like oh it's supernatural stuff and no deers and what's the line um gosh darn it um, yeah, one of them's like telling them, uh, you mock, you know, but uh, because uh, Immerich is chuckling and being like, don't tell me, wilderfolk and forest spirits, ooh la la, you know. Uh, and uh, um, pardon me, Heath is like, you mock, but we'll see who laughs when some spiteful shade turns us both into toads. So, first of all, fun foreshadowing because they do get turned into, well, not toads, but wolves. Um, but also just this thing of like, I, I, one of the reasons I personally really like a lot of sword and sorcery is I find on average in the genre, the characters are superstitious and there is this idea that you don't just accept the world like you might all believe it in the same way you kind of like expect uh, at least as modern people looking back through history um, those ignorant people of the past uh, to just believe in a general sense in sorcerers and dragons and whatever the heck else but it's this feeling of like the day-to-day practicalities oh those are just stories and i really like that a lot more than when you read a fantasy story where just the what we would consider the fantastic elements are just life, right? Sorcery is just technology. Everybody rides a dragon to work, whatever. Um, so I guess I was reason I'm bringing this up aside from the fact that just I kind of like it when you know superstition is brought into an SNS story because it helps blur the line of what may or may not be real and it makes the story more ambiguous and interesting to explore. Um, do you guys feel that? 
a sword and sorcery story on average is better for having characters who are superstitious and perhaps even get it wrong about what is or is not real in the sense of the fantastic or does it matter to you whether or not you know the characters are superstitious uh jay why don't you answer that first oh um yeah i think belief systems in general and sort of superstitions and other accumulated human foibles are kind of mission critical to creating good characters i think in terms of making sword and sorcery like sufficiently weird that you need to have you know that you need to have people that have been in this weird world and have had to come up with coping mechanisms for it um for one of any other way to put it um the idea that like not just like like fantasy religion with a big trademark next to it but the idea that you have like a series of little beliefs that you have accumulated through your experience of the weird that I think sword and sorcery does really well in general. And I feel like this story is a very good example of. Awesome. Uh, Matt, how do you feel about all that? Um, I, don't know, I guess, I mean, I think, I guess part of thinking about like the Conan stories, part of what I think makes the sorcery sort of work or make it seem sort of weird or unsettling is the, his own feeling toward it and that uh, he is a very sort of grounded person and it feels unnatural and he's scared by it. So then you, the reader sort of associate it with uh, scariness. I mean, I think that is one of the, I guess, markers of the genre relative to like broader fantasy is it's understanding and approach like the, the dichotomy between the kind of grounded, almost like realism or naturalism of the characters in their world, which is closer to like historical fiction and uh, juxtaposed with the, uh, you know, the fantastic, right. That sort of, that contrast is what lends itself to the kind of telltale hallmarks of the genre. Um, but I don't know if I sort of feel strongly one way or the other. I mean, I mentioned Elric was a big influence for me and uh you know that's obviously a very different approach even though like mm -hmm. um the magic's still very dangerous in elric's world um and definitely not like a plus um i do like the sort of the sorcery approach from sword and sorcery i like the idea that it's like corrupting and that it's sort of uh to me i always read it as sort of analogous to like knowledge and i think there's something compelling about uh sort of the pursuit of knowledge almost for its own sake it sort of becomes destructive uh so i don't know I'm just rambling at this point okay i actually thought that was a really good thought um i also come from like closer to elric than conan like philosophically in terms of sword and sorcery like it's not that I, I don't appreciate the Conan stories, but certainly like where I got started in sword and sorcery was, I mean, strictly speaking, where I got started in sword and sorcery, just to wrap it around with the wolf thing is Elf Quest, um, which uh, is essentially a sword and sorcery tale about a band of elves that ride wolves. And then it goes really sideways from there. But um, in terms of like, like uh, Wendy Peeney was the first um, exposure that I had to uh, Elric 
just because she had done some Elric work and actually published a, a book of uh, her Elric illustrations um, that were originally done for a, a film that she um, was going to do when she was in school. Um, and so like that was sort of my entree into that world. And so I come to it from a slightly more, um, I hesitate to call it romantic, but sort of like uh, a slightly more, like a, a slightly larger embrace of the sorcery part than the sword part. <laughs> but um, some people sometimes find a little uh, confusing. But anyways, um, yeah, that that whole element, I think, is really... Um, laced really well throughout this short story. I feel like the magic here is definitely kept very supernatural. It's never um, explained. It's never given a system. Um, the nearest we have to that is her like her moonflowers thing, which uh, I thought was neat and you know, kind of an elegant mm -hmm. detail. And it again sort of played back to the fairy tale thing. But yeah. Yeah, I agree. See, okay, so I'm in the minority on this panel. I came to Sword and Sorcery originally through Savage Sword of Conan. Yeah. Uh, so very much through the uh, Thews, not books, <laughs> uh, sort of end of the spectrum. And I don't think there's any wrong place to oh, be no, on the spectrum. There is sure. a little bit of a jocks and nerds thing going there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Elric. Hell, I, I've been fortunate enough to get to publish a new Elric story. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, yeah, no, but, it's it's just funny, that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I think, yeah, that maybe there's, yeah, maybe Jocks versus Nerd, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, I deal with the fantastic elements, but I, I mean, one of the reasons I personally just fell the hell off of what was then contemporary fantasy uh, in sort of the late 80s through the 2000s. And again, I mean, I'm making a very broad statement, so there's going to be exceptions yeah. to this, but um, by and large, I found the fantastic uh, felt less fantastic because it tended to move more just in the reality of the characters, especially when you have demi humans charging around. Um, and I then would read these sort of Conan uh, issues I had and just be delighted to see this hero who was so tough and capable and interesting occasionally be like, oh, my God, and be terrified when he encountered a supernatural element uh, and, and to have the supernatural elements. Sure, sometimes like it's a giant snake. OK, sure. But um, a lot of the time they were not something that felt like they fell out of a D&D monster manual or whatever or fell out of anything else that I was you know familiar with. And so I felt like it was more curious. It's like I had to think harder to figure out what might happen or more accurately, it was easier for me to turn off wanting to figure it out and just like enjoy the story. Right. Um, and I, I found that even in this story because it has, I guess you could argue a stock monster, right? The werewolf. Uh, and there's been many interpretations, but you know, Hey, we all know what werewolf is broadly speaking. Um, there have been some good werewolf stories in sword and sorcery before for sure. Um, a cold night something like that uh it's a cane story anybody in the chat wants to help me out here <laughs> uh but yeah there's a carl Edward wagner story uh something cold night god damn it um that has also to do with a werewolf uh, situation that's quite entertaining and the fact that it's a werewolf and not like an obscure cosmic horror or whatever uh, <laughs> pardon me oh, so there's typing <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, yeah yeah reflections in the winter of my soul thank you javier um so that is the story i was thinking of and i won't say much more about it other than the fact that it's a werewolf story and you can t figure that out pretty early on much like with this like you can kind of guess the broad strokes of what's going to happen uh with tamora but it doesn't take away from the story at all and the fact that we're familiar with the werewolf i don't know it doesn't bother me the same way as if they ran into a bunch of goblins with plus one short swords or whatever do you know what i mean yeah, and I think too, like that's also the again the kind of fairy tale element of it for me was that it was a monster that's um, 
that it occurs in different spaces um, because, you know, you have a very traditional view of werewolves, but then, like, they also do appear in, like, fantasy romance and a whole bunch of other spaces that you maybe wouldn't expect them to. And they massively predate D&D, so yes. there's less of that feeling, I guess. But, yeah, as I say, you get, yeah, they're you get, classical like, in a way that some other monsters aren't. Yeah, like, they can tie into gothic horror, which, of course, was Carlo Reiner's, you know, big thing. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, I think I really enjoy the way the supernatural is handled in this. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the term fairy tale keeps cropping up, which I'm totally into. And I think that also plays around with the ending too, right? Being slightly sinister, but also, eh, you know, maybe it kind of worked out. Like that feels almost more like a lot of fairy tale endings to me, uh, than say, you know, a lot some sort of sorcery tales. Um, I noticed that none of us is really like. And of course, I am leading this conversation, so I'm, I guess I'm largely guilty for this. But I've just talked a lot about Bullard. Uh, you know, uh, let's uh, start with you, Jay. Uh, actually, no, I keep picking on you. Let's start okay. with you, Matt. <laughs> uh, did you have any thoughts uh, about Bullard? Anything you wanted to bring up or discuss or just share? Uh, not really. Like, I think part of probably why we're not mentioning him is I think he's kind of sort of one note or at least just like. And I don't think there's much going on there other than, you know, um, I'm going to read the description here. This is on, if you're turning your hymnals, please, to page 15. Um, <laughs> a plump, cheery man sat camped on the side of the road. An unadorned walking staff lay next to him along with two large packs stuffed with what presumably was every item he owned. A glint of gold winked out from beneath one strained and bulging flap. So he's kind of this, I don't know, almost like... Uh, I don't he's know, very stock sort of fantasy, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, stock fantasy. He's associated with like money right away, so I'm already sort of not on his side. And uh, and then um, I don't know, like I be honest, I can't even quite remember. Like he was, he's some like he and Tamora like know each other or something, and he shows up later with his hobrats, which I super love by the way, the hobrats. Um, <laughs> mostly because I love that name. Uh, speaking of D and D, that feels like straight out of like some old TSR, like early '80s, you know, monster manual, whatever. Well, I but those those the... monster manuals were largely out of sword and sorcery novels, so yeah, you know, yeah. this is true. I should... Yeah, um, but otherwise, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't have too much to say or contribute as far as like feelings on him. I mean, you know, he's he's like sort of the bad guy. Yeah, um, he felt he I felt cannon foddery from his appearance. Yeah. And, yeah, he gets to be um, both, I feel like uh, he was used just enough. Like he was, he was kind of he performed his purpose in the story from a structural standpoint, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't like overstay his welcome. He popped up and did what he needed to do so that the more interesting things could happen. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. You know, and actually, just before we lose that, uh, it's true. The early D and D books were massively influenced because of the appendix and reading list, which was like three quarters full of sword and sorcery authors. Um, I should clarify, I suppose, when I use that, like, when I say, like, D&D Monster Manual, bracket derogatory, <laughs> I tend to be thinking of later stuff, like Fifth Letter or whatever, but yeah, I mean... You yeah, know, no, you the, the, the TSR specifically are, like, so heavily influenced. Mm-hmm. Right down to, uh, you know, stats for Elric and other characters, I think, showed up in some of the yes. earliest stuff. Certainly Dragon Magazine, but there, I think some of the... Hmm? There's, like, a beautiful thing in terms of all of, like, uh, like, Warhammer fantasy is the same way, but also, like, TSR yeah. stuff, like... In the beginning where it still has that like sort of punk edge where it's not codified, like it's still supposed to be pretty like DIY, 
Like, mm-hmm. what do you mean rules? Like, what are you talking about kind of thing, right? Like, that would have been their ethos. And then as it goes on, obviously, these things become, like, codified to death. And that's usually what people react against, right? And that's where, that's where like, sort of D&D really now is as far from, like, what you would maybe consider sword and sorcery as possible because of how codified it is. Whereas sword and sorcery is much more in that weird fiction vein of, like you don't like codifying these things sort of defeats the purpose. Like it's sort of antithetical Absolutely, to the purpose yeah. of what you're doing. Yeah. I, I realize that it's very easy to snark about magic systems, but God, I hate magic systems. Yeah. It's to me, they're antithetical yeah. to the point of the fantastic because it's making the fantastic mundane. Now you need a system. Like, for yeah. A game, it's like, I, I wanted, I wanted <laughs> fantasy math. Yeah. Fantasy. Yeah. Physics. I think, yeah, there's like, like I've read and I like everyone talks about Brandon Sanderson, like he's the dude when it comes to and I feel like and I do actually enjoy his stuff. And I feel like he act like he has a shtick and he knows what he's doing. And I think he does it really well. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone sort of takes the wrong lessons from him in the same way that everyone sort of took the wrong lessons from Tolkien. Um, like he built a world around like a systematized magic system, whereas I think a lot of people now sort of just assume like, oh, let me start with like the magic rules or whatever. And that, that immediately I'm just like, well, what are we even doing anymore? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. yeah kind of like, as you say, Tolkien people being like, I got to fill 10 moleskins with uh, world building before I could even decide what the story is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how about you go get a PhD in language and then go write your novels. Okay. Why don't we start there? <laughs> yeah. Whatever you do, don't start like, with the idea of the character. Tolkien, like go, go read the old Norse poems, you know, like actually read what he was influenced by. <laughs> um, yeah i am um, i, I will confess to being very guilty to being one of those people who has 10 moleskins full of stuff but <laughs> on the flip side oh, i've yeah. also I informed mean, all, it with you know. many more things than just tolkien yeah uh, <laughs> oh it's all good i'm not trying to identify like the oh, bad no days. no it was just, uh, just saying like, we, we all have like, my face is turning in. very purple right now <laughs> <laughs> i've been seen and known Um, I'll bring it back to Bullet and Sorcery in a second, but I just want to say one thing that I find kind of amusing about the relationship between SNS and D&D is um, I feel like there's been this kind of back and forth going for a while where like D&D, you know, came out in 74, 79, we get the appendix end that makes it more explicit, like the strong SNS influences on it. But then you get the early 80s where like there were other reasons SNS died and that's a whole nother conversation. But I do feel something that contributed to it was when uh, D&D, mainly through the red box, like blew up and became a lot more easy for people to get into and understand. And as much as it took from SNS, like, um, you know, because you have a band of adventurers, you generally have a fellowship, right? Like, I think it evoked Tolkien a lot more between that and stuff like that and the demi-humans to people at large. And then the people sort of thought, okay, well, that's fantasy, right? And then you get those kind of expectations feeding into fantasy publishing. And so you look at contemporary fantasy changing, especially around the mid-80s onward, into being something that is very much not at all SNS. Um, and then, you know, D and D gets more and more codified as Matt was saying, you know, and then by the time we get to the early two thousands, like D and D looks very different at 3.5, uh, definitely doesn't look like SNS. Most contemporary fantasy doesn't look like SNS and you get, what do you get? You get this reaction, right? You get, uh, maybe, you know, Howard Andrew Jones and the new edge trying to bring sword and sorcery back. Right. And you get, uh, the OSR, which is like, Hey, let's go back to that early pre-codified D and D when like, you know, it wasn't quite so you know, um, whatever codified. Uh, and the big one there I always think of is Goodman Games with Dungeon Crawl Classics, who put the Appendix N in the back of the thing. And their whole ethos is we're trying to recapture the Appendix N, which again includes a lot of SNS. 
Lo and behold, Goodman Games publishes Tales from the Magician Skull <laughs> with stats on the back <laughs> with Howard as editor. And Howard goes on to inspire a whole bunch of people, including myself, uh, between Howard uh, and me coming across learning about the appendix and in the back of Dungeon World Classics. I, you know, here I am, a guy, you know, who's founded his own magazine. And so we have this third wave, hopefully, uh, kicking up of SMS and just like round and round it goes. I want, you know, and also there's multiple systems right now uh, aimed specifically at evoking the SNS feel, right? I mean, DCC does it in a broad sense with Appendix N, but you get, like, yeah, there's a whole bunch. I'm, maybe I'm going on a bit of a tear, but I just think it's kind of neat how it's been back and forth, back and forth, and I wonder what the next shift will be in this conversation between SNS and tabletop role-playing games. Um, but yeah, Bullard, uh, yeah, as you say, Matt, uh, Bullard, Bullard comes in to do a thing, and he does it. And I think I'm fine with that. I think I'm really fine with that. I honestly don't know, off the top of my head anyway, how much I would mess with Bullard. Like Jay, you know, I'm gonna put you. Oh on yeah, spot. no, it's fine. Uh, I, I was, funny, I was just thinking about that. Like, th there's a thing that there's a thing that goes into writing a short story that's specifically a short story, and one of the things that you kind of have to do is, um, kind of a complicated arithmetic of like how complicated are the elements of the story, and what elements can I simplify? And I feel like to to her credit here, like specifically, I think simplifying the villain was actually really smart because making the villain complicated here would have made it a lot more challenging to have both like a complicated figure in Tamora and a complicated villain. Like you would have to spend so much more page space on complicating both of these people. Um, whereas in the way that it's presented here, she can just be strange and the strangeness is kind of its own mystery that pulls the reader along. Um, and you don't actually really think about Bullard at all because he's just like, obviously he's so like, obviously not good that you don't really need to know in what ways he's bad until they're at the final fight. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. Like, honestly, um, Bullard is not a problem and he doesn't need to be solved. He's here doing what he should be doing. And there's, yeah, there's got to be economy, right? Like, I I don't think a Book of Blades has a word limit, uh, but yeah, like, whatever. Like, at some point, you just want to be like, okay, this is as long as I want the story to be. Right, at some point, a short story becomes a novelette, and at some point, a novelette becomes a novella, and at some yeah. point, a novella becomes a novel. So, like, at a certain point, you sort of have to... Um, and this was... Um, I'm trying to think of the exact phrase that it was used when I was at VP, um, but one of the instructors was basically sort of like, the more complicated this element is, the more simplified that element has to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel very I feel very strongly about that, that sometimes people will try to approach a story like this and try to put too much wild stuff in and then all the wild stuff just kind of like doesn't have anything to hang on to. Like either you need a solid structure that you can hang interesting things on or you need an interesting structure with uncomplicated details. And I feel like there's a really good balance of that in this particular story. I completely agree. You know, um, I had a story in Whetstone last year that was basically a fight. <laughs> but keeping it that simple let me have a lot more fun with the details and made it interesting yeah. through those. If, if you, if you, yeah, it's like if you try and make everything special, then it just gets over, over complicated. Like, is if, you know, if you did complex engravings on every single inch of something rather than just the border, uh, yeah, it becomes hard to, to see everything and crowded. 
Um, yeah, I think okay. uh, well, there's another like Bullard is also uh, he's like the bird, right? And so, or he's that magpie that he keeps running into. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think that is kind of a brilliant way of sort of like, and it's something that like I'll definitely think about writing my own, but, but like. Because when you see that revelation, because the magpie is like one of those moments of like uh, where the story does a good job of building this like sense of unease and dread. And the magpie is one of them. And then to find mm -hmm. out that it was this dude this whole time sort of like retroactively cast this whole thing over the story. And I think it's a really, again, like efficient and economic way of perhaps making him more sinister than he might have been otherwise to know that like he was sort of there the whole time and he is part of that structure of dread but it's so i mean it's like one line right it's like a phrase really where subtle. you find out that he's he's the bird um but it, it is a really like sort of master stroke in terms of like how you can kind of keep your villain sort of pretty interesting and sinister without again sort of having him go into some elaborate backstory monologue or something or again like y'all were saying like if he suddenly started spouting off a bunch of stuff that would completely suck the energy away from like what the story is actually about, which is this woman and the way that she kind of uses these men perhaps, or relates to them. Like, I don't know. I still think there's something, I guess I wanted to ask what y'all think about the sex scene here. Um, hang on, let me, uh, <laughs> where it is. Cause I was, I was, uh, this is on page 23. I was thinking again, as we were talking about the ways in which there, you can read this in a lot of ways. And I think on my first, as I was reading it, I was thinking like, oh, this is like, you know, sort of a kind of sex positive, like thing where the woman has this sexuality that's really off putting to these dudes. Um, but the, uh, I wonder what y'all think. So this is on page 23. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Uh, everybody. Everybody, hold on. This is right in the right in the middle of the page. Um, this is the part where she uh, says, "Come join us." Come join us. Her amber eyes seem to burn with their own intensity. Caught somewhere between temptation and caution, Emmerich stuttered for a reply. I uh, maybe later. I better check the horses. Her smile grew faint with disappointment, but she shrugged and resumed, favoring Heath with her aggressive attention. Heath waved a hand and tried to get out a response that was muffled by Tamora's hungry kisses. Emmer wasn't sure if it was an acknowledgement or plea for help. And I think there's a way to sort of read that as sort of funny because I mean, he's fine perhaps, right? He comes, he comes out later and he's like, she's really forward. And uh, I'm a little yeah. unsure, but I don't know. There's still a way, there's a space in there. I think that you can read, like perhaps there is something like, and this is right after, like he tries to get on top of her and she's like, nah, -uh. and then she flips on top of him and sort of, you know, exerts this kind of force over him. Uh, and again, there's a way you can read that as like sexy and sort of uh, a sort of a redistribution of agency. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also maybe a way that you could read it as more sinister. And I don't know what y'all think. Yeah, I mean, she is a werewolf. It's one of those things that when you when you come back to it. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying in the chat. That's her being wolf like when you uh, reread the story, say reviewing it for a panel uh, discussion. Definitely. It, it comes off a little different. You know, I, I definitely the first time just read it is like gentle humor and a bit of like yeah you know let's have something a little different than the, the guy leading or whatever um right. but looking at it now i'm just thinking like yeah like this is actually sounds vaguely threatening <laughs> oh yeah i read it i would say that i read it as like 
again, another element of the, like, kind of, I hesitate to call it supernatural because it's very natural, but, like, in terms of, like, things that are off-putting or unsettling for them, that mm-hmm. definitely was one of them. And it kind of defers, like, it, it creates that that sort of, like, there's something unusual happening here energy that I thought, um, I, I found it super effective for me. Um, and I think overall, like, it kind of, it did kind of tie into a lot of the sort of fairy tale elements in the sense of, like, I would say almost like touching up against some taboos, mm-hmm. like playing with playing with expectations, but also playing with like the social rules of um I mean like in terms of like just that that whole thing where female desire is generally treated as suspicious or otherwise um manipulative. And in this case it didn't really feel manipulative, it just felt like unusual. And uh, again, I th- I thought it was very effective, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I found it kind of like you know it was a little thrilling to be like, oh hey, there's some actual yeah. like, sex happening in one of these SNS stories I'm reading, and also like yeah, maybe a little amusing, but I don't know. I say as a, as a <laughs> for my sins, a Russ Meyer fan who loves the tagline uh, "Too much woman for one man." Uh, you know, this idea yeah. of women just being like tornadoes that tear through the lives of the the male characters. Um, right. And yeah, there's definitely I, I, sort of like a, yeah, there's definitely sort of an element of that that's, I'm sorry, I'm trying, I didn't mean to like interrupt, but I, the thought just uh, sort of hit me as you were saying it. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That, that um, specifically that, that treatment of female attention is just so like, whew, I don't want to call it weird or unusual because I wish it wasn't weird or unusual, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, but it's kind of interesting. Actually, uh, Fred just put something up in the chat here saying uh, they're being pulled out of their comfort sort of slash human zone into another one. Yeah, and they're I being do... pulled into the, the the portal of the fantasy. Yeah, yeah, we're getting into that liminal uh, fey realm, uh, except uh, in this case it's, um, you know, aggressive female desire, uh, which is, at least for these guys, is, is another world. The real fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Um, okay, well, I I have really really enjoyed discussing the story. We've been at it for almost an hour now, so we should probably get to winding down. Um, okay, people in the chat, if you have any final questions or comments, please think about them or type them out now while we hear uh, first Matt, then Jay's final thoughts on the story. Uh, Matt, is there anything you know you sort of just to wrap up your thoughts about the whole thing or anything we didn't get to that you would like to share with us? Um, I think I said most of what I wanted. Um, I mean, I think it is an interesting story about like predation and prey. And can y'all hear me? Can it was a little me? faint, though. Yeah, eat the mic okay. a little, maybe. But uh, yeah, we can hear you. Uh, no, I, I liked it. Like I said, my first read through, I was kind of, uh, you know, ho hum. But thinking about it a lot more the past again like 24 hours i think there is a lot more depth here that i really appreciated and it definitely makes me want to check out more of this writer's stories um i don't know how to say their last name marketan marketan um, let's, let's go with that <laughs> yeah sorry for uh, missing apology. it up. Uh, um but uh i yeah I, I i think it does i think there are some again thinking about we said it a few times like the economy of storytelling i think there's a lot to pull here like if you are a writer 
um, tricks and ways that you can sort of move things along and establish your characters very quickly in a short amount of space. Uh, but yeah, check it out. Right on. And uh, Jay, any final thoughts, comments, questions, etc.? Um, uh, I feel like we've pretty much covered everything I had. Um, one note that I did want to make, just because I did reference ElfQuest earlier, is that the wolf woman's name is Tamora, and I am desperate to know if it's a reference to ElfQuest. <laughs> um, because it's one letter off of a, one of the um, wolfiest characters in the series. Oh, um, interesting. And so, like, yeah, now I'm kind of fascinated. Um, and it just occurred to me, like, now as I was slipping through the book, I was like, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, other than I feel like we really covered everything that I had on my docket. And um, uh, in in general, yeah, I I just thought those this was a great story and a, a great example of ways that you can approach uh, classic sword and sorcery storytelling with elements that are contemporarily popular. Um, such as fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I feel too that we've we've covered everything. Certainly, I wanted to discuss. Um, you know, in the chat here, we got Fred saying this discussion showed more uh, than I saw when I read it, and I'm glad he said that because yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. Like I I did enjoy it enough to think yeah, we should chat about this story. But certainly through the discussion, like we've drawn out stuff that I found uh, I hadn't first thought of or had thought about in any great depth. So I'm really glad we did this. And uh, maybe we should do more of these chats, huh? Who knows, eh? Um, and definitely, like, I've read a little bit of her work before. I think this is this shows improvement as a writer. And I think that's always very exciting to see. I'm very curious to see uh, whatever she writes next. Uh, and definitely, like, I really enjoy the story. And I appreciate it a lot more for us having uh, given it the kind of attention that we, uh, SNS heads, so often reserve almost exclusively for the classics. So, yeah, uh, this is pretty good. Um, Oh, in the chat, uh, Kevin says, I'm pretty sure on the Whetstone server, the author mentioned 80s Elric and ElfQuest were her first exposures to SNS. So that uh, Tamora reference is quite possible. Okay. I, I, cool, that cool. feels so plausible to me. I, I'm going to lean, I'm leaning hard on it. In which <laughs> case, like that actually just like, my heart just went like, I'm very happy. <laughs> nice. I don't know if, to, um, if she's on our server, but I should definitely, if she isn't, I should send her an invite. Uh, yes. All right. Yes. Um, okay. So again, thank you both uh, so much for making uh, time in your evening to uh, discuss this story. Thank you to all of you in the chat for attending. Most appreciated and for sharing your thoughts and stuff. Uh, yeah, I think I would love to do this again uh, so <laughs> far. You know, we've had three and they've all been pretty good, uh, I think. Uh, so I have a story that I would like us to discuss that I think can get us to some interesting places uh, in general for discussing SS uh, on top of, um, pardon me, SNS, uh, on top of it just being a darn good tale. Uh, and in fact, tale is in the title. The story I would like to propose for next time is Dara's Tale by Mark Rigney. And this was uh, roughly in the middle of Tales from the Magician's Skull, issue number seven. It seems fitting that we uh, finally discuss a short story from a magazine. Uh, <laughs> what magazine to go to, of course. Uh, the skull is a real, just burning bright, you know, light uh, in the scene. Uh, so yeah, issue seven, uh, it's, you know, even if you can't get a physical copy, because that's not always, always easy with, uh, pardon me, that's not always easy with the skull. It is available digitally uh, very affordably. So yeah, pretty easy to check out. And as far as when we do it, oh, I don't know. Let's say... Wednesday, November 22nd. Let's go with that for funsies. Um, Sounds all good right, to me. Uh, 
I will reiterate that in the server to make it easier for people to check it out. Meanwhile, uh, if you're hearing this on YouTube later, uh, thanks for hearing this. Uh, please check out uh, the magazine, newedgestoriesandsorcery.com. And uh, again, you can find uh, this story in particular in A Book of Blades, Volume 2, uh, available on Amazon in soft hardcover and, and digital, if I remember correctly. And uh, you'll even find a little story by me uh, in there. <laughs> Bonus, question mark. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you all for joining. Uh,